Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, and in this episode, I will be looking at some more letters. In fact, about a year's worth of, of letters, even though each episode I'm only looking at 20, um, they happen to spread across the entire year of 1928, January 1928 to December 1928. And um, yeah, let's see, let's see what's in these, these letters. Like always, he's going to talk a mix about his own writing, the stuff he's reading, the stuff he likes to read, um, a few interesting comments on his politics and, and, and philosophy. Um, yeah, that's what we get in these letters. But uh, we're going to go at them pretty much one at a time, as I have been in the previous episodes, as we're coming to quickly to the close, to the end of the first, second volume, the second volume of the Selected Letters. So the first one we have here is uh, delivered, was delivered to Frank Belknap Long. Uh, it's dated February 10th, 1928. Um, uh, just some, him talks a little bit about the local scenery. I guess more interesting in terms of his literary interest and his circle of friends. That's another aspect that's interesting in the letters is you get a circle of friends and the people he knows about and the people he's encouraging others to read. He's always very gracious about uh, his his uh, friends. Uh, he does this here to Dwyer. Dwyer's been one of his pen pals uh, throughout this this volume. And he thinks Dwyer has quite a lot of potential uh, to be a good writer. Um, for our purposes in this podcast, perhaps the most interesting thing he talks about in this letter is the racial uh, characteristics of the Romans. He's been, in, you know, Lovecraft at this point has been on a bit of a Roman uh, obsession. He had that Roman dream uh, we looked at in a previous episode. Um, very, very long. In fact, I'm th still thinking about going back and studying that Roman dream as almost like a story when I get back into the stories. Um, but he says this. Uh, if you want to do anything towards looking half respectable, as respectable as any rate as a bohemian decadent can look, you delete that infamously neurotic upper lip down to the decent, clean-shaven Roman nobleman of equestrian rank and counselor dignity. How I hate those little Greek barbiculi with their tufts and fringes of stickly, sickly fur. Um, and so he's talking about basically how Long should dress and present himself, but he ends up going into a little conversation about the differences between the Romans and Latins, almost in physical and racial features. And then he talks a little bit about the reprinting of The Lurking Fear, which I think this was printed as a, with a book. He gets $78 for this, this reprint. Oh, no, this is France, France Worth Wright reprinting Lurking Fear and Weird Tales. Um, so this might be the third reprinting of, of the Lurking Fear. I'm not sure when it came out in the little book. Oh, sorry, that's the Shunned House that came out in the little book. Never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, the Shunned House came out in a little book. Uh, Lurking Fear, this would have been the second reprint, the second printing of Lurking Fear. Um so, a little bit of money for, 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 for poor, poor Lovecraft. Um, next one, uh, a letter to Zelia Brown-Reed. Again, this is this is the time he's working closely with Reed on some of those revisions, like The Mound and The Curse of Yig. Uh, later, Medusa's Coil, those three great revisions, uh, which we're going to have the pleasure to look at shortly uh, when we get back into the stories. Um As always, he's, he's with with Reed. He's talking about um, his, his his beliefs, his ideas, especially his literary ideas. This letter is kind of more interesting because it goes a little broader into other areas of of Lovecraft's interests. 
Uh, for instance, he talks about his views of history and his desire to kind of live in a simpler age and his affinity towards the simpler age of the past and, and how he finds that superior. He talks quite a lot about his ideas on, on modern philosophy. This is a long letter, by the way. Um, and the, the stuff on philosophy, especially on democracy, I think is really, really crucial, especially as we get into the late 20s and 30s when fascism begins to emerge more as a real threat in the world. And we get, uh, but maybe not, clear to people at the time just how much of a threat it was to civilization. And so you get people like Lovecraft thinking about, you know, well, what's so bad about fascism? It's, you know, and then he gets back and forth um, with them. Especially at this time, Lovecraft is more open-minded about these other, other traditions. His conservatism lends him to be suspicious of, of democracy in general. And we get some taste of this here where he says, well, I, I am... While it's utterly radical in such departments of sheer intellect as science and philosophy, thoroughly and cynically conservative, even reactionary in social and political matters. A Tory, czarist, Juncker, patrician, fascist, oligarchist, nationalist, militarist, and whatever else the sort you can find in the Webster's Dictionary or Roger's Thesaurus. My idea of minor democratic and humanistic ideals simply can't be printed, for I am old cultural standards and ruthless aristocratic efficiency in government and sadly out of tune with our modern sociological messiahs with our modern hip flask hounds. So much for my philosophic position. So, uh, yeah, that's important, uh, I think, an important piece of evidence in, in building up his political philosophy. Then he jumps into his theological views. Um, obviously, he's a... a an atheist, but he has an interest in in mythology. I think he has an interest in uh, you know kind of mysticism and and how that has become part of human kind of consciousness. And this allows him to feed into this uh, a discussion about kind of America as a, a, a kind of Roman decline or or decadent declining. Empire, and so much of this letter to to Bishop goes on and on about the decline of the Roman Empire and how it's comparable with the American situation or the the West the situation in the entire West at the time. Um, and we a little get a little bit of his uh, views on alcohol here. They, they come up in his letters frequently, um, but we saw in a previous episode, very early in this podcast, when I looked at his, I did a whole episode on his early writings against alcoholism as they appeared in conservative journalism. Um, here he brings up just growing alcohol use as sign of a civilization in decline, um, which is interesting. This is prohibition times when he's talking about this, um, but he's still. It's just I guess that's just a reminder of just how little uh, prohibition actually affected affected how people actually drank, right? Um, he writes this. This is interesting. Um, granting that alcohol is an antisocial force isn't antisocial enough compared with murder, robbery, etc. to warrant the expenditure of infinite money and energy without securing any better results than so far appeared. This is him on prohibition. He's actually a little bit anti-prohibition. To a, he says, in 1919, I was wholehearted prohibitionist, but in 2000, or in 1929, I am more or less a neutral. End quote. Um, you know, I, obviously, I don't agree it's antisocial, um, but uh, many non-drinkers do see it as a, as a bit of a solipsistic endeavor. Uh, all in all, this Bishop letter, I think, is a really good one. It's one of his better ones, uh, if you want to kind of get a broader view of Lovecraft's philosophy, because a lot of his letters to Bishop 
intended to be about literature, intended to be about just writing. And, and if that bores you, it kind of bores me, to be honest. I'm more interested in these other aspects of his thought, especially because he's kind of repetitive on, on his philosophy of literature. This letter is kind of a nice uh, departure from that. So next we have a, a fairly short fragment of a letter to Dwyer. He's the guy I was just mentioned in the long letter as some, a promising young writer. Um, and he basically, this is a recommendation. He says you should read Castle of, of Ortrano by uh, Raleo, which he does that a lot. He, he often recommends books to, to people to read. He reads something and he says, ah, you should read it too. He's very generous with his, his advice. Um, next, we have yet another letter to Zelia Brown-Reed, uh, Zelia Bishop. I'm always giving both names there just so we don't confuse. Uh, um, you know, Zelia Bishop is how she appeared in the writing, uh, you know, the name on, the, on her works. Uh, now, The Curse of Yig, that's what this letter is about. It's, it's basically another business. It's a letter of business. It's... Uh, It's uh, him telling her, I've completed the snake tale, which is the Curse of Yig. In fact, Lovecraft picked the name, the Curse of Yig. Now, the writing of the Curse of Yig, as with the writing of the mound, is that Zelia Bishop had this idea, had a very rough idea, and then Lovecraft kind of ran with it. And especially with the Hound, he kind of makes it totally Lovecraftian. He, he has this, the, the idea is just ghosts hanging around Indian mounds, was Zelia Bishop's idea. And Lovecraft makes it a story about ancient, you know, lost civilizations, kind of like... Uh, by the mountains of madness it's great it's a wonderful story i'm really excited to talk about that in the future um but not much here just saying he's done he's, he talks a little bit about his thoughts on the story the price um you know he's he's, he's got to worry about money he's poor right quote as for the price on account of the congenial congeniality of the theme i said i would make a cut rate and promise not to exceed twenty dollars typed but the same arithmetical process, the untyped job ought to cost seventeen fifty, at which figure it might be considered to stand. This plus the twenty-five on the previous work bring the total bill up to forty-two fifty. What's the previous work? Curse of the Egg, I thought was the first. Um, let me. Well, we'll come back to that when we look at the revisions later on. So, not much in this letter outside of uh, his business, but we get a we we know how much he made from. From, from this. I think, I, I remember reading that when he reduces Coil, the third of these, there was kind of this issue about unpaid bills, so maybe he didn't put as much time into that one. That's why it's considered the worst of them, worst of the three uh, bishop provisions. He was kind of put out because he wasn't getting paid, so he didn't work on it as hard. Um, the follow-up letter to this is very short. Again, it's just a fragment. Often with this edited book, we're getting just fragments of longer letters uh, that the editors at the time thought was the most important fragment. Uh, obviously, it would be better if we had the whole letter in front of us, but you know, I think it's fair to trust the editors on most cases that it's boring stuff that's not going to be too much interested to you. But when you go into the full letters, um, or the long, it's less edited down like we have in the Robert E. Howard anthology or the other, I think there's a long anthology um, as well, you get a sense of what's missing and sometimes it is good stuff that gets missed um, anyways this is to Donald Wandry and he, he basically talks about writing uh, the Curse of Yeg and its delivery to weird tales and he talks, talks about how difficult it was he says this latest revision absolutely annihilated me um, 
I mean, we just saw he only got like seventeen dollars for it, um, but he does say it will come, and that it's all his. So this is a good piece of evidence that um, Zelia Bishop did not contribute much to the writing of of the Curse of Yig, which I think we know. All right, next uh, letter to Frank Belknap Long. I guess I haven't been giving dates. Sorry, this one's April, nineteen twenty-eight. Uh, a little bit on fantasy literature here. Uh, some more suggestions on what he should read. Um, a few books suggest he talks about Coolridge a little bit too, which is kind of interesting. Um, there is a kind of a hint of kind of racial, cultural, you know, broad historical thinking here, which struck me as as relevant. He writes, for instance, no one thing, cosmically speaking, being either good or evil, beautiful and unbearable, for either is sim for entity is certainly entity. Sorry. Try that again. For entity is simply entity. The qualities of goodness and beauty are altogether local and temporary things, measurable only as the mental, physical, imaginative response of organic beings of a given type and training to certain forms of relationship with given backgrounds made familiar through structure and experience. Given a sound Puritan ancestry, whether we like it or not, and the childhood amid the civilization with which those ancestors wrought, we simply cannot help having a more vital relationship to matter created from a deep instinctual feeling of that Puritan blood and fabric than to exotic matter. So we've seen this so many times in these letters, this basic philosophy of, of why you kind of have to stick to your cultural roots right in the face of immigration now one argument for this given often at the time is a racist argument it's a fundamentally an argument that anglo-american civilization or teutonic civilization or just white civilization in general is superior to others and therefore we should that's why that we should embrace that culture lovecraft certainly believes in the superiority of these cultures so i'm not saying he's not racist but i'm saying he's got a point of view here that even if like Chinese civilization was equal. And then sometimes he talks about Chinese civilization as a as a as comparably advanced as as Western civilizations. It's just so different that it's not compatible. It's like mixing oil and water in a way. Um, so this this conversation about America's cultural heritage from the Puritans, it's wrong, obviously. It's bad history. It's it's uh, that's not the only folk way into into American culture. But in any case, that's what he writes here. Uh, it's just another reminder of, of maybe what you already know. But uh, again, if you're mining this for, for conversations about race, this is an important letter for this part of it. Um, next, we have a, a letter to Wilfred Blanche Tallman, uh, dated April 1928 on a Friday. Um, he's talking about Tallman's story, The Visitor, and, and he likes it. Um, and then he gets a little bit more on his own ancestry. Uh, he talks about some other letters too, an O'Brien uh, story, um, an anthology called Tales of Mystery and Magic. Uh, some talks about the reprinting of Lurking Fear. So a lot of literary stuff, a lot of stuff about what's coming out and, and what's been published recently. Um, but then he gets a little bit into his 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 kind of the old 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 island stock of his mother's line. And this is interesting. Um, 
he sees them as, as he kind of is confessing they got mixed. This is something we came we talked about in a previous episode too. Is as he started to study his genealogy a little bit more in the 1920s, especially after he returned to Providence, he's he developed a lot more interest in this, and he did a lot of visiting of different sites in Rhode Island uh, connected to his family history. He's realized it's not all as pure as he thought, and there's mixture, and that's what leads to that famous. I mean, it's not famous, but it's notable to me because I remembered it so well. Where he says, like, I'll accept anything north of the Sahara at this point. As, as you know, I, I'm, I've come to terms with that aspect of it. Yeah, and I think the joke, someone said, well, maybe there's Jews in your background. And he says, well, at this point, I'll accept anything north of the Sahara. Um, and he, he kind of says this again here, uh, but maybe more matter-of-factly. He says, maternally, I'm simply a tangle of Phillips's, Rathbone's, Sazes, Hazards, and Mathbussons. They got monstrously mixed towards the top of the chart. In all truth, the old 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 Rhode Island stock is perhaps more thoroughly intermarried than that of any other region outside the decadent Tennessee hills. Rhode Island is more of a family than a colony. I don't think any old Rhode Islanders can claim to be absolutely free from the strain of common blood with any other Rhode Islander. So actually he's saying here he's kind of more inbred uh, than having a lot of foreign influence. But you know, if we're gonna pick, like he's right here, if we're gonna pick on the Tennessee backcountry people for being inbred, you gotta talk about the royal family too, right? You gotta talk about Lovecraft's own family. Uh, all right, good stuff. Next, we have Clark Ashton Smith, uh, April 19th, my birthday, uh, 1928. I was born a little bit later, though. Um, just a few years later. Uh, what's nothing he really here? The Bierce job he talks about. Uh, there was a well, I'll just read the whole section. It's just a little note. Uh, just now I'm feeling rather like a Californian because I have old De Castro's memoirs of Bierce in my hands for possible revision. It's full of anecdotes of the San Francisco literati, but it's so rambling and so stuffed with material which scarcely touches on Bierce that I'll require a tremendous amount of recasting. I shan't accept the job unless I can make a pretty decent arrangement, or it's going to be a hell of a grind. Unquote. So Lovecraft wants to decline this job, and as far as I know, he did decline it. I don't know that he ever revised a biography of Bierce. Uh, if he did, wow, cool, but uh, uh, he wants to decline just because the job's going to be too tough. So we see he didn't accept every revision job or accept them uh, without, without careful consideration first. Uh, we see him, he was kind of regretting the curse of Yig a little bit, saying how it absolutely just, just annihilated him. Okay, next we have a letter to Brown, Zelia Brown-Reed, Zelia Bishop, uh, May 1st, 1928. Um, this seems to be a follow-up to the letter he wrote before about where he went on about uh, America's Roman decline. Because then he, this, he gets back to his favorite topic of these years, which is Providence versus New York. And he's still going on about his dislike of New York. Uh, and he, you know, he, he says the same kind of stuff about, about New York that he's been saying for, for months and months. Um, and we know he prefers Providence, right? Still going on about this dislike of New York. But he does talk about areas of New York that he likes and, and new areas of New York that are more welcome to him. He writes, for instance, fortunately, the present quarters are in the very least. He's, in, he's writing in New York when he does this, by the way. So he's back in New York visiting. And he says, the present quarters are in the very least offensive part of the whole greater New York area. A part so homelike, village-like, and old American indeed that there's really very little in the immediate environment to complain of. 
painful. So some not so bad parts of New York. Um, in the next letter, we learn why he's in New York at this time. It's dated May 10th. He's there visiting his wife, uh, of course, who he's been separated with. She's, she went off to do a job in, in, in Ohio. They, he, he, instead of staying in New York, went on back to Providence, and eventually they get divorced, of course, but they, they remain married for a number of years. Uh, and they, they do touch base from time to time, and this is one of those trips. Um, so next we have a letter to James F. Morton, dated June 29th, or sorry, June 1928. Um, and the most interesting thing here, maybe for a Lovecraft fan, is that he started working on the Dunwich Horror. He writes, I'm at work on the first new story I've written in a year and a half. It's to be called the Dunwich Horror, and it's so fiendish that Wright may not dare print it. The scene is the upper Miskatonic Valley, far, far west of Arkham. So that's kind of interesting. We get the geography of Dunwich, which I think is pretty clear in the story. It's obviously not Arkham. It's in the Arkham, but is it in Arkham? Suburbs, uh, outskirts, you know, the Colorado space is kind of closer to Arkham, it seems. It's set in a place closer to Arkham. Dunwich, a little bit more backcountry. It's not clear quite how far. It's often seen as being part of the Arkham story because much of it takes place in Arkham. Um, but the main heart of the story is in in this, this small town, Dunwich, a great story. That's the most important thing here. Um, but then he, he opens this letter, this passage opens with him talking about the difficulties of hiking, uh, climbing, and, and all that kind of stuff. He says, I certainly don't care for the process of walking per se. What I'm out for is a series of visual impressions. So he's, um, talking about how he likes to go out and see the forest, see the trees, see the, the, the neighborhood, but he doesn't want to actually do the physical labor so much. So it's kind of funny. It's a, it's a nice little letter, but I think most important is working on the Dunwich Horror. Moving on, next letter to Wilford Blanche Tallman, June 1st, 1928. Um, it's a kind of a long letter and I didn't dig this one too much. I didn't find it that interesting. Um, there's, there's one or two things here about socialism that, that come up here, but mostly he's talking about, like, I guess Talman gave him some heraldry that, or had him look up some heraldry. And Lovecraft being interested in genealogy, of course, would have liked this. Um, I always thought this stuff was kind of silly. It was around when I was a kid, you know, that you could write into magazines with your name and some information that give you what your family heirloom or their family heraldry is. It's stupid really seems silly to me um but lovecraft kind of dug it i guess Have, having that more aristocratic um, family background um maybe more interesting is how he's still trying to find thinking about family he talks about wanting to find cousins in weird fiction to find people who write like him people who, who you know there is a circle of weird fiction writers around weird tales um but lovecraft still feels a little bit alienated from from this, I guess. Um, he, wa he wants to see these drawings of the Lovecraft heraldry. Uh, he talks about that as well here. He kind of goes back to the heraldry section later on. Now, where he talks about socialism, he talks about Will uh, Morris's William. I think, does he mean William Morris here? 
He writes, uh, no crest given. I don't know from what Morris's. Oh yeah, he's talking about William Morris. What Morris's? I don't know what Morris's William sprang from, but I guess I'll claim him even if he was a socialist. I enjoy sitting in his chairs, though they're damned ugly. Glad to claim Mark Twain. Twain. All I know about Mike Clemens is, is that the first in Rhode Island was Thomas, son of Richard and Sarah. He was also known as a Clement, end quote. So some playing with who you're related to. So it seems he, he might be related to Clemens, Rhode Island Clemens. Maybe that's Mark Twain. Maybe related to William Morris. Uh, maybe William. And even though William Morris was a socialist, he is a fantasy writer. So uh, Lovecraft really has no choice but to embrace him. More or less, I just can't. I'm just not at all interested in this kind of obsession with like family heraldry. It seems so stupid. But some people really like it. If you're into that, explain why. I get, I can get going into your genealogy, but to try to, to imagine yet your your family was notable. That's what seems silly to me. Most of our ancestors were just damn peasants. All right, moving on. Uh, Zelia Br uh, Brown Reed, Zelia Bishop, uh, July twenty eighth, nineteen twenty eight. Uh, this is a more personal letter than the previous ones we've seen to Bishop in this episode. Uh, it's mostly a summary of his trip south. Uh, I'm guessing, did he go south after after New York? I think so. The, the Talman and Morton letters weren't didn't have locations. Um, so he went... Where did he go? He went all the way to Washington. So that was uh, the trip south. Um, he also talks about previously spending some time in Vermont in Battleboro, which is, of course, important for the Whisper and Darkness story. Uh, so he gives a summary of his trip south, including Washington. He talks about this Vermont trip and how he eventually uh, wants to see the Shenandoah Valley. So it's mostly about his, his travels, and Lovecraft did that, obviously, quite a lot, um, even though he didn't like walking. As he said in the other letter, he certainly likes seeing other parts of the world, seeing its architecture, seeing their... Um, that's, I guess that's why I don't get why he's so insistent on like this Puritan foundation of America. If you go, just go to other parts of the country, you see a diversity of, of architectures and folkways. It's pretty clear right away that America is not a singular folkway. folkway. But whatever. Anyways... Uh, Next, next uh, letter uh, to Clark Ashton Smith. We haven't seen him write to Clark Ashton Smith yet this episode. That's dated August 31st, 1928. But, and we don't got much to talk about here, unfortunately. I always like the Smith letters. But here, we, it's kind of boring. It's just that he finished a 48-page story called The Dunwich Horror. He says, it belongs to the Arkham Cycle. The Necronomicon figures in it to some extent. Heaven only knows when I'll get the time to write another revision has struck me with full force again. Um, as you probably know, this is the time he's writing significant length revisions, a lot of major revisions, and it's also a time when some of his greatest stories come out. So he's, it's one of his more productive periods of his career. I think that, that post, like the early 20s and the late 20s, you got a lot of works, a lot of significant works. Uh, next one, uh, James Morton. How can you recognize gentlemen? It's a very short little fragment here. How do you recognize a gentleman? He jokes about uh, 
accepting work, revision work, I guess, from people of a certain background. Okay, I'll just, I'll just read the fragment. As for me, I expect any gentleman to recognize another gentleman by his intangible psychic aura of superiority. If he doesn't, it's his own fault. And I don't care to do a revision for persons outside of the land of gentry. Therefore, I shall henceforth demand references from professor clients together with the sketch of their coat of arms and a brief summary of their genealogy, end quote. Which I love because this is just what I was saying, how ridiculous it is to, to, to have this coat of arms, this heraldry, and, and to try to trace back your family through so many generations of aristocrats. It's, it's lame, but, you know, Lovecraft is someone who's had to come to terms with kind of being not uh, from one of these fallen families, I guess. All right, moving on. Uh, the next one is uh, to August Derleth, October 1928. Just, this is a letter that talks a little bit about the beauty of October in New England, and I don't doubt it uh, one bit. He wrote it from the Lincoln Woods, wherever that is. Um, this, this is followed by a slightly longer letter to Zelia Brown-Reed, Zelia Bishop, uh, October 2nd, 1928. This is about modernism so that's kind of a running thread throughout his letters is his feelings about literary modernism joyce and, and those elliot and those people um and he talks specifically here about the stream of consciousness style obviously that's not something lovecraft would do but of course it was a big part of that i just finished a series on um james adji who is an american uh advocate of of kind of modernism and, and a follower of joyce in his own way um, he doesn't like stream of consciousness. Lovecraft doesn't. He thinks it's too extreme. Uh, Lovecraft, but he doesn't say it's bad necessarily. He just kind of says, I am in my heart kind of a literary conservative, conservative, and I really can't accept what's happening. But I don't think he really says it's bad. He writes, for instance, literary art, I think, must continue to adhere to the practice of recording outward happenings in consecutive order, but it must from now on onward realize the complexity and irrational motivations of all the happenings and must refrain from attributing them to simple, obvious, and artificially rationalized causes, uh, end quote. And I think this is Lovecraft trying to find his own kind of common ground with modernism, saying, yeah, like the strict realism of the 19th century doesn't work anymore, but the solution to that isn't just to go totally subjective and stream of consciousness, but to address and acknowledge the complexities of the world out there. Uh, he says, I for one believe that it can be done in such a manner as to leave the main current of Western European literary tradition undisturbed in its aesthetic essentials. Um, and I would argue that's more or less what happened. I mean, you do have the modernists, but how many people really do rejoice? Sure, many people who listen to this podcast do. I'm sure uh, many people who read Lovecraft also rejoice. Um, but, you know, most books that are written are not in that style. They're not embracing the experimentation of modernism, right? <clears throat> Stream of consciousness, you, you get point like maybe a little bit, but not the long like 20 pages like you get in Joyce or Adji for that matter. So anyways, you know, but he's writing at a time when this is like, it seems modernism is like really emerging around him. So this is a kind of interesting, uh, nice letter to look at. Um, next, we have a letter to Elizabeth Tolridge, uh, dated October 16th, 1928. Um, this is also talking about modernism, um, but he's talking about her work, uh, a story in the woods that he, he said he rather liked. Um, but he come, comes back to this issue of modernism, 
saying, I would not be inclined to consider its lack of modernism a barrier to success. As far as I can see, the importance of the radical forms has been greatly exaggerated. So he's repeating what he's already sort of said here, is that he doesn't think that modernism is all that great. Um, now, what's interesting here is he kind of moves on to poetry, and he acknowledges that poetry changes over time. Obviously, it does. Uh, he's right there. Um, but he also thinks with poetry, some of the, quote, advanced moderns are too radical. Uh, so then we have a letter, uh, November 8th, 1928, to Farnsworth Wright. These letters, you can always sort of skip if you want. They're usually just about business, and that's the case here. It's about the resale of Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft's desire to have a new anthology uh, and to have his own work, uh, The Color Out of Space, be included in that anthology. You know, it's a way to make some money. And then the final letter I want to talk about today is Elizabeth uh, Tolridge. And I just want to kind of make a net mention of it. It's, it's dated November 20th, 1928. Um, this, is, I guess, is a follow-up to the previous one on modernism. The dates, it's a month later. It's a month later, so it could very well be, a, probably is a follow-up. And the key thing he wants to talk about with, with her is the market for poetry. And if the history of the market of poetry is of interest to you, maybe go to this letter. It's not something I'm, I want to say too much about. Um, he, says he, he talks about some of his own work, though, here, too. Um, Dagon, which he spelt wrong here. Had him read Dagon. Um, I think my style's improved in the 11 years since I wrote it. Um, yeah, there's actually some interesting stuff here now that I reconsider this. Uh, talking about the sea. Um, quote, yes, I saw that newspaper item about the medallion found off the coast of France, but didn't take much stock in it. I fancy the thing was either Phoenician or Greek, if not early Gaelic under Greek or Punic influences. These resemblances to Central American styles are too easy to imagine, but not many of them will bear analysis. End quote. What's interesting about that is he does exactly that sort of thing in a story called The Transition of Juan Romero, where he imagines some sort of, sort of primordial connection between American civilization and, and um, Indian civilization. Uh, talks about the sea a little bit, about the Call of Cthulhu. So, good. Actually, this letter is, bare, bare, is worth looking at. All right. So, that's all. That's 20 letters. Um, the last 20 letters in this, in this anthology, the second volume of the Selected Letters, covers almost 100 pages. The whole book is 350 pages. So about almost a third of the book are just these 20 final letters. Um, but I'm going to keep with this method. What I'm going to try not to do, what that tells us is that these letters are long. <laughs> At least some of them are. It turns out that it's a handful of these are extremely long letters, right? Um, so I will not be phased by this. I'll just continue to do what I'm doing in the next episode. Look at the final 20 letters in the second volume of, of this anthology. Um, talk about them in the same way. But I'm just warning you, there's a couple really long letters in here. Actually, three or four, I think. And, and they may take longer to, to, to talk about it. They really are essays. One in particular is really an essay. Um, to, to Harris, a man named Mr. Harris, who he writes a few very, very long letters to. Um, there's some cool stuff in these, though. Um, there's a long letter to Long, too. That's great. So 
yeah, I'm excited to to look at some of a couple of these because they're ones I go back to a lot when I'm thinking about Lovecraft and, and trying to write some stuff about them. So that's going to bring us to the the next episode brings to the end of this first in-depth series into Lovecraft's letters. So anyways, let me know what you think about the issues that come up in this episode. Maybe nothing too controversial or profound, nothing really new. Unfortunately, we get a little bit more of his feelings on modernism, I guess. We get um, some nice little personal things. We got the writing of the Dunwich Horror, some of his travels. We got the heraldry stuff, the heraldry, the, the kind of the family history stuff, too. So nothing earth-shaking in this, this set of letters, uh, but that's fine. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed listening to these and hopefully this will be a useful guide if you want to go and, and check out these letters yourself so anyways let me know what you think let me know if you have any questions and i will see you next time as i conclude this uh this dive into these letters